What's up, everybody? It's time for another edition of The Majority Decision. I'm your host, Greg Garcia, coming to you from the great state of Texas. Thanks, everybody, for downloading. Got a lot to talk about on this episode. We've got a full week of UFC fights that have finally come and gone. Three cards in eight days. Man, what a week of UFC action it was. And we're going to recap a little bit on what happened in each card. Talk about a few controversies, some more interesting judging decisions, and the big fight between Anthony Smith and Glover Teixeira that resulted in the loss of teeth. We're going to talk a little bit about the world of professional wrestling, the ratings battle between NXT and AEW reaches all-time lows as Raw and SmackDown Ratings also continue to drop as well. Vince McMahon finally responds to the lawsuit. Oliver Luck, who is suing the XFL and Vince McMahon for wrongful termination. And Vince McMahon gives his reasons for Oliver Luck's firing. And one in particular that I think we'll all get a good laugh at. We'll also talk a little bit about some other things going on in the world of professional wrestling. A little bit of news here and there. Sami Zayn, the Intercontinental title and a few other things that are going on as well. And, of course, we'll hit you with another edition of the Do You Remember That Time When? Well, let's kick the show off. Let's talk about UFC. Let's take a look at some results over the weekend, anything that kind of stood out. Of course, everybody was ready for, the, for MMA. I mean, people are ready for sports in general, and it looks like we're beginning to see the wheels start to turn on some sports leagues. A lot of NBA teams are going to be opening up their practice facilities over the course of the last couple of days and over the course of the next couple of weeks. It's going to be very interesting to see what decision is made in the NBA, MLB, and of course the NFL. Uh, there's a big standoff between the players union and the owners in the world of Major League Baseball. And of course the main dispute is not necessarily over the safety of the players and whether or not they'll get tested but of course the dispute is money and if there's anything that we know over the over the years if there's anything that I know that I've learned just being a sports fan it's that when they say it's not about the money that can only mean one thing it's all about the money so we'll see what happens but we do know that the UFC uh, did a great job they held three cards in eight days, all in Jacksonville at the Vice Star Arena. And they, in my opinion, did a great job. I think it went about as well as you could have imagined. Yes, three people tested positive for the coronavirus, but they were quickly whisked away and isolated. And to my knowledge, I don't believe that anybody else tested positive, which is a good thing. You know, there's still a lot to be seen. But let's, let's go back and let's just talk about UFC Fight Night that happened on Wednesday night. It was labeled UFC Fight Night Smith versus Teixeira. Card aired on ESPN+. Preliminaries also aired on ESPN+. It was a good night of fights. I don't think there was really a bad fight that I could remember. But, of course, the first thing that you really want to, that you got to talk about if you're going to talk about that show was the main event. And that was 39-year-old Glover Teixeira getting in there with a young and dangerous Anthony Smith, former title contender Anthony Smith that went five rounds with John Jones. And going into this fight, I, 
you know, I got to tell you, I didn't think Glover Teixeira had much of a chance. I didn't think he was going to be able to go toe-to-toe with the younger uh, Anthony Smith. And in the beginning of the fight, it really looked like he was not going to be able to do that. But as things kind of progressed, Anthony Smith appeared to uh, do something that we haven't really seen him do too much of, and that's get tired. And as he got tired, Glover Teixeira, who was a very technical uh, boxer on the stand-up, did a great job of just picking Anthony Smith apart. And it got to the point where Anthony Smith was just completely getting annihilated, taking a huge beating. And one of the things that's been interesting about these fights with no crowd is you can hear the corners, you can hear the fighters, you can hear all these things that you normally can't hear when you're watching an MMA fight. And there were a few things that that we that we got to hear. And at one point, Glover Teixeira is on top of Anthony Smith, pounding him, and the referee not stopping the fight. That's a whole other topic that we'll talk about in a second. But as he's just wailing away on Anthony Smith, Glover Teixeira is apologizing to Anthony Smith for the beating and telling him that it's just part of the game. It's part of the fight. And Anthony Smith down, who at this point in the fight, around the fourth quarter, or the fourth quarter, (laughs) around the fourth round, is actually losing teeth. At one point in the fight, he picks up one of his teeth from the mat and gives it to the referee so the referee can save it until after the fight. Big props to Anthony Smith for absolutely not giving up. And his response to Glover Teixeira's uh, apology was, hey, man, it is what it is. And so the definite mark of a fighter, a guy who has absolutely no quit. Of course, Glover Teixeira goes on to finish him mercifully in the fifth round. When a lot of people were saying that that fight should have been over in the fourth, uh, I was surprised that Anthony Smith came out for the fifth round. I think his cornerman made a grave mistake by not throwing in the towel there in the fourth round or letting him go back into the fight in the fifth round so you know I don't really have a different opinion from a lot of the other people out there that have said that man this was a terrible negligent decision by his corner that fight should have been stopped not only should the corner have stopped the fight but the referee should have stopped the fight in the fourth round clearly Anthony Smith was struggling clearly he was uh, he was done And, you know, if you're going to wait on Anthony Smith to give up, that's not going to happen. Most fighters out there, they're not going to just give up. It's up to the referee. It's up to the corner to, at times, save the fighters from themselves. And if any time was a time where the corner needed to save a fighter from himself, it was Wednesday night in the instance of Anthony Smith and Glover Teixeira. But uh, Glover Teixeira walks out with a big, big win. And I think it'll be interesting to see where they go with Glover Teixeira from here. He's a guy that is up in age, but continues to stand around the top of the rankings in that light heavyweight division. And he'll win a couple, and then he'll lose one. He'll win a couple, and then he'll lose one. And of course, he wants to get another shot at that title before his career is wrapped up. And you know, so what's it going to take for him to work his way back into title contention? Right now, going into that fight, they had him ranked eighth. Of course, the new rankings will come out sometime next week. I got to say he's going to be probably in the top five. And so what? where does he go next? And if he gets another win, is he going to get another shot for the title? So, you know, I got to think that with this win over Anthony Smith, that's going to put Glover to share a one 
top five win away from really having a claim at another title shot, which leads us to a completely other question. John Jones. What is John Jones going to do? He's been playing around with the idea of going up to heavyweight for quite some time now. My opinion is, is that John Jones is in the same place that George St. Pierre was when George St. Pierre was on top. And that is that, yeah, as fans, we would love to see him move up. We would have loved to have seen George St. Pierre move up to middleweight and fight Anderson Silva and some of the top middleweights. But that never happened. And the reason that it never happened was because George St. Pierre did not want to go up in weight. He didn't want to have to put his body through the transformation that it would take to go up to middleweight and compete at that level. We saw him come back after retirement and fight at 185 pounds against Michael Bisping and it was 100% clear that his body had went through a complete change he put on weight he put on walking weight and so it was a big a big difference a complete different uh, completely different George St. Pierre John Jones is saying after seeing Ovent St. Pru move up and fight heavyweight which was another fight that we're, we're going to get to in a second that he can kind of envision himself fighting at heavyweight and I think that John that I think that there's nothing left for John Jones to do but fight at heavyweight I don't think there's any really interesting matchups with him in the 205 pound division I mean I know a lot of people would want to see rematches with him against uh, you know Tiago Santos Domino Dominique Reyes and you know yeah would I be interested in seeing those rematches of course of course we'd be interested in seeing those rematches but but I think the money fights I think the big fresh matchups would be him moving up to heavyweight and vacating the light heavyweight division. You know, I'm not a I'm not a big proponent of people going into two divisions and winning two belts. Yeah, is it cool? Yeah, is it great for the fighter? Yeah, is it another way to sell fights as super fights, champion versus champion? Yeah, it's great, but in the in the midst of all of the hype, it ties up a completely other division. It ties up one division. If John Jones remains the light heavyweight champion, goes up to heavyweight to try to challenge or compete in that division for the heavyweight title, that means other contenders at 205 are going to have to wait on their shot to face the champ. So in my opinion, it's better for the champ to just give up the title, make the full move up to the other weight class, and fight. But you know, again, I, I think John Jones is kind of leaning towards the George St. Pierre route, and he's not really interested in fighting at heavyweight. I think he looks there and he sees a lot of really large guys with a lot of a, a lot of punching power. I mean, Francis Ngannou, uh, Curtis Blades, uh, you know, of course, the champ, Stipe Miocic, and you got Dan, Daniel Cormier. Uh, oh, and let me just say this. There's no way that John Jones fights Daniel Cormier at heavyweight, uh, you know, and and. And really, we don't need to see that fight again. I mean, look, I love DC. I think he's a, a great fighter, a future Hall of Famer, a two-division champion. But he doesn't need another fight with John Jones, nor does John Jones need another fight with him. But anyway, I don't want to go off on too much of a John Jones tangent there. But, uh, you know, getting back to uh, UFC fight night, where does Glover Teixeira go from here? Where does Anthony Smith go from here? And is Anthony Smith going to be able to recover from the beating that he's I mean look this these kind of beatings take years off of a fighter's career and again th these you've got to you've got to as a corner be willing to save your fighter from themselves they're not gonna quit they're not gonna say hey I've had enough 99.9% .9 of the time, that's not going to happen. And it's up to these corner men, the, the, the guys that are out there 
that know their fighter to know when he's done. Look, Anthony Smith returns and he sits down there and he says, my teeth are falling out. And in my opinion and the opinion of a lot of other people out there that I've heard, he was letting his corner know that he was done. I mean, he didn't have anything else to give. He had given everything that he could give. It just wasn't his night. It was at that point that the uh, corner should have stepped in and stopped the fight. But they didn't, and finally Glover Teixeira and the referee stopped the fight. The co-main event on the evening was a heavyweight bout. Ovin St. Preux, former contender in the 205-pound division, dipping his toe in the water against Big Ben Rothwell. Ovin St. Preux kind of, it took him a little bit to get his feeling I think a feel for the fight, a feel for the difference in power, feel for the difference in strength of the opponent. You know, Ovin St. Preux probably goes in, was has went into a majority of his fights at 205 as the stronger fighter, as the bigger fighter. Well, this was not the case with Ben Rothwell. Ben Rothwell is a big heavyweight and a, and a good heavyweight fighter, a you know, top 10 guy. And, uh, you know, it was interesting to see how Ovin St. Preux responded. It was a close fight. Uh, ben Rothwell is able to get the split decision uh, victory, 28-29, 29-28, and, of course, 29-28. Uh, so good win for Ben Rothwell. I don't know if he sets the world on fire by beating a light heavyweight, and I think we probably will not see Ovin St. Preux fight at heavyweight again. I could be wrong, but it just didn't seem like it was there for him. And, you know, and then another thing that you got to think about, too, is the flip side of this coin is, look, everybody's training methods – are different uh, you know they're all they've all been affected by this coronavirus and the shutdown it's not easy to get training partners it's not easy to get sparring partners and so you know the way he trained could have been a big difference but at least we know we can say for sure that everybody is kind of suffering from the same problem right so it wasn't like one guy struggled through his training camp and another guy did too no every, everybody pretty much went through the same thing so they're equal footing as far as that's concerned but uh, big win for Ben Rothwell. Ovin St. Preux, Preux's test at uh, heavyweight uh, doesn't work out for him this time around. A couple of other good fights on the card. Uh, Ricky Simon takes out Ray Borg. Andre Arlowski beats Felipe Lins, which was a fight that um, I didn't really think Arlowski was going to win. But, hey, he looked sharp. His hands always look sharp. The guy's a phenomenal striker. For me, when it comes to Andre Arlowski, one of the things that I always have to question is his chin. And you get a lot of... Um, you, you catch criticism. People, you know, oh, well, he, he wins another fight, and oh, I thought his chin was gone. Well, look, just because he didn't get touched doesn't mean that his chin's not gone. And he did get touched a little bit, but I don't know that Felipe Lins has the power of some of the other heavyweights in that top echelon of heavyweight fighters. Uh, so, but, you know, good win for Andre Arlovsky. The UFC moved on then for a Saturday night run of fights on ESPN with being capped off by Alistair Overeem meeting Walt Harris. And, man, I tell you what, the world was behind Walt Harris, and rightfully so. Even though I didn't pick him to win the fight, I was hoping that he was going to get the win. We all know the unfortunate, tragic story of him losing his daughter. Terrible thing. A parent's absolute worst nightmare. This guy had to be carrying a lot of weight on his shoulders going into the fight, wanting to get the win, wanting to come back. And I tell you what, man, he almost did. He came very close to closing that fight out in the first round. And Alice, he had Alistair Overeem in a lot of trouble. But it just kind of seemed like 
uh, he, and going, coming into that second round that Harris had kind of given up. And Overeem took control of the fight towards the end of the first round. And so it was a completely different set of circumstances in the second round. Overeem eventually gets it to the ground. He, he, he takes control of Harris and is eventually able to flatten him out and finish it. Great win by Alistair Overeem. Of course, you know, again, so many people wanted Walt Harris to win. It was tough uh, to see him not make the comeback and not get the win. But Alistair Overeem is an extremely experienced and dangerous fighter. He's another guy to me like Arlovsky, who his chin is kind of questionable. He's a high mileage guy. 50-something fights in the cage over his career and countless number kickboxing fights. This guy has, if anybody's tread is running low, it's Alistair Overeem. But he was able to weather the storm and get the win over Walt Harris on Saturday night. In a women's strawweight fight, it was Claudia Gadelia and Angela Hill. Uh, Gadelia walks out with a split decision win. And I'm, I'm going to just say this right now. I believe 100% Angela Hill won this fight. I did not pick her to win the fight, but she won this fight. I think it was pretty clear that she should have been the winner. And the referees, this or the judges, excuse me, uh, had a very uh, wishy-washy kind of a decision here. And that's something that we see pretty frequent, pretty frequently in the world of MMA. I know I always say this. I'm going to say it again. Look, the most feared words in MMA. And it has been this way for years. The most feared words in MMA are, and we go to the judges' scorecards for a decision because, look, you don't know if what you're going to get. I mean, we have one judge calling fight a fight 30-27 for one fighter and another judge seeing it 30-27 for the other fighter. I mean, it's almost hard to see, to understand what these guys are, are judging. And there were some very questionable calls on Saturday night that got a lot of people really upset, uh, you know, making the jokes that, that maybe some of the judges were smoking and drinking before the fights, uh, you know, a la, uh, a, a la Peterson and the uh, accusations from Dominic Cruz on Saturday night. And there were some very questionable decisions. Judging is a problem in MMA. It has been a problem in MMA, and it will continue to be a problem in MMA until a new generation of judges that actually have fight experience start to get in the game. Look, I, I don't know what it's going to take to make judging or, or to get judging up to the standard. Do they need to change the system, the 10-point must system? Do they need to ditch that and figure out a different way to call fights? Do they need to call the fight as a whole instead of round by round? You know, I don't know. But I do know that one, one good place to start would be trying to find a way to encourage former fighters to get into judging. And, you know, I know that being a judge probably doesn't bring in a lot of money. But, you know, hey, Frank Trigg has successfully moved in to a refereeing position and he's he's doing a good job I think we need to see some more of these uh, veteran fighters uh, that have stepped away from the game and start moving towards judging and get some experienced guys in there because we're still pulling from boxing for judging we're still pulling uh, people that don't really have a lot of MMA knowledge or experience and they're out here trying to call top-notch world-class athlete MMA fighters fight and I think that does a just a disjustice to the sport, I think it does a disjustice to the competitors as well. And so judging is without question something that we need to see the commissions work on and the UFC also use their 
uh, influence to uh, help make some inroads to see improvement in the judging overall. Because, again, it, it, on any given night, it can just be a mixed bag of decisions that don't make any sense. And, you know, arguably Saturday night was another one. But Claudia Gadelia gets the split decision victory, very controversial. Uh, I think, if anything, to me, in, in my opinion, Angela Hill, in and it was a controversial loss without question. It was a controversial loss. But I think that in this loss, Angela Hill deserves a top 10, top 12 ranking. If she's not in the top 10 and top 12 ranking after this, I don't know what it takes to get to that status because she came in unranked against a top six fighter, number six uh, ranked strawweight, and fought a tremendous fight out, uh, struck her and just did a just did a phenomenal job in my opinion showed me that she deserves to be ranked she deserves to be ranked in that top 10 or 12 and i think it'll be a highway robbery if come next week she doesn't have a number by her name another controversial decision on the night song versus marlon vera uh, a lot of people felt like vera won that fight but song walks out with the decision victory uh, that was a that was a great fight. Both guys fought hard. Both guys came in and they were throwing. And you know, I, I while I felt like Marlon Vera won the fight, you know, it was that close. It really could have went either way. Uh, some people did not agree with that with that, and they thought that Vera was the correct choice. And of course, the referees went with Song. But you know, again, refereeing and. You know, a lot of people say this all the time, and a lot of people are getting criticized for it, and that's the old saying of don't let the fight go to the judges. You know, I think Dana White was the one that coined that phrase. And now a lot of people get upset when they hear fans say that because they think it's a knock on the fighters themselves. Well, if the fighters were fighting harder and finishing fights, then, you know, don't let it go to the judges. But look, I don't even look at the phrase that way. I look at it as don't let the fight go to the judges, not because the fighters didn't fight, not because the fighters didn't want to finish, because we know they do. We know they want to win. We know they want to win quick. We know they want to win by submission or knockout. They want to put themselves in a position to get those bonuses. Uh, but we say don't let it go to the judges' scorecards for a decision because we don't know what's going to happen when we put it in the hands of the judges. It's not a knock on the fighters. It's not a knock on their performance. It's a knock on the judges' inability to call fights the way that they need to be called. So when you hear somebody say that, and I'm sure a lot of people do say that because they're trying to knock the fighter, well, you should have been fighting to knock out and the way I see it is you weren't fighting to win. And sometimes you can be critical and you can look at a fight and you can say, well, guys, the guy went into the third round fighting not to not to lose instead of fighting to win. And yes, that does happen on occasion. But I don't think that that we should just label every time somebody says that, that they're trying to make a knock on the fighters. It, it's not a knock on the fighters. It's a direct shot at the judges because the judges that in MMA judging are is just so wishy-washy. You know, again, until they, 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 something needs to be done one way or the other. They need to figure out a way to get it done. And so, you know, the UFC on ESPN card was a good card. It was, uh, there were a lot of good fights, man. If you sat down and you watched that entire show from the beginning to the end you were entertained it was again it was great to see uh ufc and 
I had put a poll out on Twitter. And of course, if you're listening to the show and you want to follow me on Twitter at Majority MMA, uh, of course, I'd really appreciate that. But I put out a poll on Twitter asking people, you know, what do you think about no fans in the crowd? Do you miss the fans? Do you not care? Or do you prefer it without the fans? Not really to my surprise, the result of the poll was that people didn't really miss the crowd. I'm not really surprised. I mean, the crowd in some ways when you're watching a fight can be a distracting just like the be a distraction just like the commentary can be. If you don't if you've got commentary that's not really calling the fight or they're just trying to get their stuff in and talk over each other, it can become a very big distraction to the viewing experience. So can a a crowd that's constantly booing because of uh, inaction or constant grappling or when a fight gets dirty up against the cage and the boo birds come out or the constant woos or whatever the things that people like to pick on about the crowd. But I'm enjoying fights with no crowd. And I, you know, I like to be able to hear the the corner man. I like to be able to hear what the fighters are saying to each other. I think that kind of brings another aspect to the presentation of the fights that we normally don't get. Now, when we go back to having crowds, is that going to be a problem? No, of course it's not going to be a problem, but you know, hey, this little bit of time that we're going to be getting fights with no crowd, it's kind of given us a different peek into what it is to be inside that cage and fight. So, it's been interesting for me, but man, what a great week of MMA fights. Like I said, four, three cards, eight days. The UFC did everything that they could to make it happen, and they did a great job. So let's quick hit some of the things going on in the world of professional wrestling. One of the things that I think we cannot let go, or definitely one of the things that need to be talked about, and that is the increased dip in the ratings of professional wrestling across the board. It used to just be kind of a WWE problem. Raw and SmackDown's ratings had been increasingly dropping probably over the past six years. Within the last decade, they were still probably around three to four million viewers. But as the decade came to a close, they were dropping down below three. And now we're seeing numbers at around two and below two, we've seen all-time lows for Raw. I mean, they're at numbers that they haven't been at since the early 90s. And what do we point to as the problem? I mean, when you look at the WWE, I mean, I think a, a lot of people obviously are going to point to, well, it's it's the WWE. They're not creating stars. They're not taking professional wrestling as seriously maybe as the fans would think that they need to be. The presentation is stale. It's been the same for 15 years. The way they shoot it is the same. You know, again, no new stars or not allowing new stars to break out. You know, so there's been a lot of things that you can point to that would that you could say, okay, I can understand why the viewership for the WWE is going down. But when you talk about NXT and AEW, who are arguably the top two products in terms of popularity, in terms of just show quality. Uh, those two companies have been the best show. I mean, NXT, before AEW, NXT was regularly the best weekly wrestling show, even before it was on USA, when it was just on the network. And that was regular. 
And so they put it on USA, of course, to go up against AEW. And AEW is putting on uh, good shows as well. And in spite of the, in spite the fact that they are both putting on good shows, now we're seeing their ratings are dipping as well. So we got to figure out now, you would think that because there's less for people to do, people are in the house more, that you might even think that if they're throwing out some good shows and they're giving us some good storylines, that the viewership would be maybe going up a little bit. But that has not been the case for any professional wrestling show. And of course, the first thing I think that we would point to or question about uh, as a reason for the ratings going down would be the lack of the crowd. And I just got to wonder, is the crowd really the reason that we've seen such a dip in ratings? I mean, AEW has went from 900,000 viewers on March 4th or 932 viewers on March 18th all the way down to 654,000 uh, last week. NXT has went from 669,000 or 693,000 on April 8th all the way down to 600,000 this last week. So, I mean, we're seeing a, a steady drop-off in viewership, and I'm just not sure that the fact that there's no crowd is really the reason. There's got to be some other reason. I mean, but then again, when you look at other television programming, their ratings haven't dropped off as much. So was there a wrestling bubble, quote unquote? Was there a kind of a false hype because of AEW? I mean, when AEW uh, was announced, there was a lot of hype behind it. There was a lot of excitement for it. There was anticipation from the world of professional wrestling. Uh, fans wanted to see the new product. Fans wanted to see what they had to offer. And when they hit the airways, they hit the ground running. They were giving us good shows. Now, there were a lot of hits and misses. We've talked about that before in the past. But overall, it's been a good show. It's still a good show. It's arguably the best no-crowd wrestling show that there is right now. But yet, their ratings are still going down. NXT's ratings going down. And again, SmackDown and Raw's ratings are going down. So, so what is the problem here? Uh, the only thing I can think of is, is there had to be a bubble. There had to be a bubble of popularity. The WWE's ratings were going down. Raw and SmackDown's ratings were going down regardless. That's been a trend that's been happening for the past seven, eight years. And it's going to continue to happen until they do something to change up their show. Do you remember when Raw went from, uh, you know, the the new generation, or what do they call it, the next generation or the new generation, to kind of into the more real the more reality based shows and then of course WCW came along and got hot and there were 9 10 million people every monday watching professional wrestling well there was a bubble there was a bubble of popularity there was a bubble of hype in the moment that that and and eventually that bubble popped and when WCW went away a lot of the fans went away and the WWE's audience, it wasn't like Raw took over and all of a sudden they're getting 10 million viewers. No, fans dropped off and they continued to drop off. And the ratings went down from five from five to six down to three to four million. And they have continued to go down ever since then. So I think that with AEW 
coming and the hype that was behind AEW because they did a tremendous job promoting. They've done a tremendous job of, of building up excitement for their brand. They've also had the internet dirt sheets, quote unquote, behind them. If you listen to any of the so-called, quote unquote, wrestling experts on the internet, all of them are highly favorable towards AEW and a lot of them do control the narrative of what fans think on the internet and have been thinking for 20 years on the internet. So there had to be a bubble and this bubble has burst. Now I remember when AEW was first going to start and I said, "Hey, look, if they if they're going to be somewhere around 600 to 700,000 in viewership, if they can be at that point, then it's a victory." And of course they came out with over a million, but now it's dwindled down and now they're around that 700,000 could it be that it's not that that people are not watching because there's no crowd it's just that we're really kind of the casual fans are starting to drop off and now we're seeing what the real hardcore fan base is i've said this for years the wwe's hardcore wwe fan base is probably somewhere around a million to a million and a half people. Those are the people that are going to watch wrestling every Monday, no matter how terrible it is. They're going to watch the show because it's WWE. That's what they've always done. That's what they always will do until they die. It doesn't matter how terrible the show is. They're going to watch Monday Night Raw. They're going to watch SmackDown. And so I think what the WWE has done over the last 10 years is they've ran off all the casual viewers and they continue to run off the casual viewers. And that's why we're looking at one and a half million viewership to two million viewership. And they're going to continue to do that. I mean, when 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 Impact Wrestling was at its best, they were getting around to two, two million, one and a half to two million. So they're at Impact. Think about that for a second. They're at TNA Impact viewership numbers right now. WWE, the biggest wrestling company in the world. And so I think what's happening with the ratings is we're seeing the casual fans begin to dip off and we're dwindling it down to the hardcore fan base that's going to be there regardless. And so will that turn around once we bring the fans back? Maybe, maybe not. I hope certainly that it does because, look, if w, if Monday Night Raw settles in at one, at one in a million to one and a half million regularly, that's going to be a problem for their TV contract. If if SmackDown settles in at one and a half million, if they continue to drop below two million, that's going to be a problem for their contract. And if they, you know, do I think that they're in danger anytime soon of getting repositioned on another Fox channel? No. But could that happen? Absolutely. Absolutely, if they keep going the way that they're going. So, you know, hey, if you're a wrestling fan, you need to be tuning in. We need to do what we can to try to get these ratings up for all the shows, not just WWE show shows, but NXT and uh, AEW as well. So, you know, hey, some other wrestling news going around over the past week. One of the big things or one of the big talking points that's been out there for, for the past week or so was the fact that Sami Zayn was stripped of the Intercontinental title. And, of course, the narrative that the dirt sheet writers are trying to tell everybody is that that the WWE is angry at Sami Zayn for choosing not to, not to wrestle during this crisis when they already came out and said nobody that anybody that would not uh, want to wrestle doesn't have to. And I think we've seen that happen 
And, of course, other people would point to Roman Reigns. Look what they've done to Roman Reigns. They virtually erased him from from TV and don't speak his name and all that bunch of stuff. You know, and I don't know what's going on in the situation with Roman Roman Reigns, but the Sami Zayn thing is easy to answer. This is an angle, guys. Come on. I mean, give me a break. They're not mad at Sami Zayn. I mean, would they be possibly disappointed after he was working during the during the coronavirus and then just decided not to? I mean, look, that's his choice. If he doesn't want to wrestle during this time, then he should absolutely be allowed not to wrestle. But the fact that they stripped him of the Intercontinental title doesn't have anything to do with them being upset with Sami Zayn. It's them taking a real-life situation and trying to make it into an angle. If it wasn't an angle, Sami Zayn wouldn't be on Twitter burying all the other competitors in the tournament. I mean, come on, guys, don't buy into this ridiculous narrative. And I'm not trying to stick up for the WWE. What I am saying is don't be a mark, okay? Don't don't be a mark. Clearly, it's an angle. Sami Zayn has been doing some of his best work on Twitter since they took the Intercontinental title from him. I mean, so, you know, were, was WWE disappointed in Sami's decision? Probably. Was Sami Zayn maybe disappointed in the fact that they took the Intercontinental title from him? Probably not. He probably doesn't care. I mean, he's going along with it. They're making it into an angle, and it's going to be an interesting angle if Shinsuke Nakamura goes on and wins the tournament, becomes the Intercontinental champion again, and when Sami Zayn comes back, which he will eventually come back, now you've got two guys that have been on-screen allies that are both going to have a claim to the Intercontinental title. You've got a built-in heat for Sami Zayn's return to TV. So, I mean, come on. They're taking a tough situation. They're making it into an angle. It's nothing more than that. They're not mad at Sami Zayn. They don't hate Sami Zayn because he did what he felt was best in staying home. He's not getting punished. They're, they're making it an angle. They, they don't want the Intercontinental title to be off TV for three or four, five, six months. So they're, taking, they're making an angle. Don't overthink it, guys. Don't, don't make wrestling more complicated than it actually is. Vince McMahon, of course, shut down the XFL, filed for bankruptcy, put it up for sale, fired the commissioner, Oliver Luck, and no sooner could Vince McMahon fire Oliver Luck did Oliver Luck file a wrongful termination lawsuit against Vince McMahon, and we all awaited in anticipation to find out what were the reasons that Vince McMahon actually fired Oliver Luck. And this was one of the reasons that they gave Oliver Luck. One of the reasons that Oliver Luck was let go was because he used a company-issued cell phone for personal use. That is tremendous. The reason that they gave for firing Oliver Luck from his position in the XFL One of those reasons was because he used his league-issued cell phone for personal use. Absolutely amazing. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a company phone or not, but I have. And no, they don't want you using it for personal use. And yes, if you're making long-distance phone bills. Yes, if you're calling 1-900 numbers. Yes, if you're making calls to Japan and China and Thailand, then then yeah, you're, you're crossing the line. But if you're just making phone calls home to say, hey, I'm on my way home, I don't know about that. But anyway, I thought it was funny that that was one of the reasons that they fired him. 
Of course, they had some other reasons, negligence, that he wasn't paying attention, that he signed one particular uh, uh, player for too much money, uh, you know, and didn't didn't discuss it with the board or something. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. We know Vince McMahon doesn't back down from a legal fight, and Oliver Luck certainly has the money to not back down from this legal fight. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how this thing turns out. My guess is they're going to come to a settlement uh, out of court. Nobody will ever talk about it again. But, it, you know, the XFL, I thought they were doing it right. I wish they could have continued on with it, and it would have continued. It didn't. And, you know, look, we need to close the door on a second pro football league. It's just not going to happen. In other big news, and this is a big one here, AEW announced that Mike Tyson is going to make an appearance at their next pay-per-view. Mike Tyson back in the world of professional wrestling and it's not for the WWE. That's big news. That's very big news. He's going to be there to award the title of this Dynamite Championship tournament with the belt. That's big news. Mike Tyson is still big news. Even all these years later, Mike Tyson is still a big draw. Mike Tyson is still an attention getter. Mike Tyson is still someone who warrants mainstream publicity. So it'll be interesting to see how AEW utilizes him. And, of course, right now he's big news because people are speculating that maybe he's going to come back for one more fight. So I think it's a, a, a mutually beneficial uh, partnership between AEW and Mike Tyson. No, we don't want to see Mike Tyson get in the ring, but just the fact that he's going to be there is an attention getter, just like it was back in 1998 for the WWE when they brought him in. Of course, it was different times then. Mike Tyson was arguably the biggest, one of the biggest pay-per-view stars uh, going at that point. You know, not so much now, but he's still a big name and he's still going to garner a lot of mainstream attention. So I think AEW bringing in Mike Tyson, I mean, hey, look, if you can do it, why not? This guy is a star. And like I said, he still garners and he still captures a lot of mainstream attention. And, you know, we also know he's a big wrestling fan. So his involvement, AEW's, his involvement at Double or Nothing is going to bring some eyes to that event. And hopefully so, because look, AEW has been uh, putting on some great wrestling shows. They've got some guys on there that are doing some really good things. And, you know, again, anything that's going to stop the bleeding on the ratings right now. We want these companies to be successful, uh, you know, as fans. We also want them to be successful for the guys that they employ. The WWE has let go a lot of people. And no matter where you stand on that, uh, it is what it is. But they've let go a lot of people. We don't want to see that happen in AEW. We don't want to see that happen in any other wrestling companies. So, but Mike Tyson being at Double or Nothing is a big deal. And it'll be interesting to see how they utilize him, uh, if they utilize him in a different way other than just a smile and hand the belt over to the winner of the Cody Rhodes and Lance Archer match. So that's going to do it for the news. And as we bring the show to a close, I want to take you back and I want to ask you a question. Do you remember that time when The Undertaker defeated Hulk Hogan for the WWF Championship at Survivor Series in 1991? Nobody saw it coming. Hulk Hogan at that time was the man. Literally, almost unbeatable. And 
he's going up against The Undertaker, who at the time had only been in the WWF for less than a year, or right at a year. In fact, he had made his debut the year before as the mystery partner of the Million Dollar Man and his Survivor Series team against Dusty Rhodes and his Survivor Series team. And so the in the span of just one year, The Undertaker is now wrestling the biggest star in the WWF for the WWF championship. And not only is he wrestling him, but he's winning. The Undertaker walks out as the WWF champion with a little assist from Ric Flair throwing in the chair and the, the tombstone on the chair that clearly missed by a mile. Absolutely hilarious. But man, I tell you what. I was a kid at that time. I think I was probably around 10. I did order that pay-per-view. And to to see Hulk Hogan actually get beat by The Undertaker was quite, quite the ordeal to be able to see. Young me was definitely blown away that the Hulkster had been beaten, that Hulkamania could possibly be over, and that The Undertaker was walking away with the WWF champion. Now, he, he lost it like two weeks later at Tuesday in Texas in the rematch. But and of course, there was a lot of controversy that followed that, which that was what eventually led to the 1992 Royal Rumble, which was, in fact, the greatest Royal Rumble in the history of the WWF. We might do that one another day as a do you remember when as well. But that was a uh, that was a very uh crazy moment there and to see the undertaker be the champion to see the undertaker being like one of the first guys that didn't wear the belt around his waist he just carried it and let it drag on the ground as he walks to the ring it, it kind of brought a whole different dynamic to who a champion was we had never really seen a character like the undertaker be the world champion and uh you know it was it was a very cool moment in the history of professional wrestling and again like me as a kid i remember watching and just being in complete shock and i, I probably at the time I'm, I'm i'm wondering is hulk actually hurt and you know there were there were rumors that for years uh, hogan had actually uh caused a stir in the back after the match that that the that the tombstone had actually hurt hurt his neck and the undertaker had reportedly had heat because of it and you know it's funny now because it's obvious when you watch it watching it back then and even watching it now that his his head was a foot away from the canvas it never even touched the chair the undertaker completely took care of him but you know the story goes that the undertaker actually held that against hogan for a long time and then fast forward back in the early 2000s when hogan returned to the wwe the undertaker wasn't too keen on working with him of course that's the story that that was told and uh you know so very interesting interaction there between an up-and-coming star and someone who would become one of the greatest character wrestlers of all time and if you haven't seen that last ride uh, documentary that's going on on the network man i cannot recommend that em uh, enough the first episode of it was last sunday is definitely worth an hour of your time so you want to hit the network up and check that out but the undertaker versus hulk hogan the grave challenge of you remember back that was the time when uh, all, all of his big matches kind of had that you know is this the one you know the ultimate challenge the mega powers explode the gravest challenge and uh, for The Undertaker to walk in there and get the pin over Hulk Hogan was definitely something huge for him and his career. And uh, 
you know, it really set the Undertaker up and I think put him over the top at that time and really cemented him. He was a made, I think he was a made character after that. He was a made man, so to speak, after that. And, uh, you know, Hulk definitely saw someone that he could draw money with down the road. Of course, you know, that never really happened as Hulk eventually went on and left the WWE and ended up going to WCW and having a great run there in the mid to late uh, 90s. But do you remember that time when The Undertaker defeated Hulk Hogan at Survivor Series 1991 for the WWF Championship? What a great match. Uh, what an interesting match. And, uh, you know, again, something that we look back on with uh, pretty cool memories as longtime wrestling fans. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of The Majority Decision. I hope everybody's doing well. I hope you have a great week. And we'll see you next Sunday right here from the great state of Texas.